Good morning again. The peace of Christ be with you all. My name is Brad Cheney, and um, you, you know, if this is your first Sunday, then you don't know that they threw me such an awesome um, going away party. Not not just for me, but for the entire family last week. And um, I've, I've told a number of you that it was probably the kindest, most encouraging thing that has ever happened <laughs> in my life, and it's something I we will treasure for the rest of our days. So thank you. I mean, the words "thank you" feel so hollow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it really, like my sister in Denver watched the ceremony and she cried and then Cora was watching in Virginia and she was crying and Hannah was watching in Oklahoma. My dad watched it. Um, it, it just meant so much to all of us. So thank you so, so very much. Acts 27, we're moving through getting to the end of our sermon series in Acts. Indeed, we'll finish it next Sunday on my last uh, Sunday preaching. In the year 2000, you may have seen the George Clooney film, uh, The Perfect Storm. Anybody see that one before? Yeah, it's based on a true story. The sinking of the Andrea Gale uh, is the commercial fishing vessel that set out from Massachusetts. Uh, Gets trapped in hurricane-like conditions. Apparently, there were waves 30 to 40 feet high crashing over the ship. It sinks. Everyone dies and it turns out to be a box office hit, $350 million at the box office. You know, ever since Homer's Odyssey, people have loved stories of peril at sea. It's, you know, we love it as kids, we love it as adults, sea voyages and attacks by giant squid, and pirates, and, and all of that. Well, Acts 27 would make a great movie, too. It's, it's the, the sea voyage chapter of the Bible, the, the longest narrative in the book of Acts, and so if you are parents, you're doing family devotions, and you're having a hard time keeping your kids' attention, all you got to do is go to Acts 27 and read this one, the entire chapter. It's filled with excitement and drama. If you recall, if you haven't been here so far, Paul believed that he couldn't get a fair trial back in the region of Israel, and therefore he appealed his court case to the Caesar, to Rome, and he is on his way to Rome. Um, his secret motivation for traveling to Rome is to preach the gospel to the imperial city. He long wanted to do that, and here he's on the ship, and he's going to have his wishes uh, fulfilled, or so he thinks. Uh, he, he's traveling, though, in a way that he I mean, certainly didn't anticipate it. He's traveling in chains. Luke, the author of Acts, is also on the ship with him. That's why when we read this section, you'll notice all of the first-person plural pronouns, the we and the us. Luke is there. I know nothing about sailing. I'll just say that at the beginning of the sermon. Apparently, the Mediterranean Sea is very dangerous to travel from mid-November to something like mid-March. It's notorious for being um, very dangerous, and so especially back then, uh, they would oftentimes harbor the ships during the winter. Paul had urged the captain and the centurion to take this journey more slowly, but they were determined to get to Rome as fast as possible. The, uh, the breadbasket of the Roman Empire was where? It was in the Middle East, particularly in Egypt. And so this is a, a vessel carrying grain. Presumably, the ship's captain is under some heavy deadlines to get to Rome as fast as possible. And thanks to his foolishness, he chooses to press on, and we get this great story, a, a sea story, that tells us something about uh, sovereignty and the braving of storms. And we read beginning in, what is this, verse 
My Bible doesn't have the verse numbers. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave to it and were driven along, running under the lee of the small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they, we, they would run aground on this, on this uh, Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all the hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had, not been, they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and injured, incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you also those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come and we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurions and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take all, to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day and you have have continued in suspense and without food having taken nothing therefore i urge you to take some food for it will give you strength for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you and when he had said these things he took bread and giving thanks to god in the presence of all he broke it and began to eat then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves we were in all 276 persons in the ship and when they had eaten enough they lightened the ship throwing out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. This turns out to be the uh, island of Malta. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf, The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them uh, from uh, carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first to make for the land, and the rest on planks or on the pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, we've spoken to you numerous times in our service today. Uh, we, we praise you that you're the one who inspired Luke to write these words. And we ask you to open our hearts and our minds that we might receive them and put them to good use 
for the sake of your glory and our good. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Quesera, sera. It was, was it originally penned by uh, Cervantes and Don Quixote? I can't remember. Quesera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. It's that Spanish uh, happy fatalism <laughs> that, you know, all of the events of life are predetermined. The future is fixed. There's nothing you can do to change that. But if you're living in a sunny Mediterranean climate, it's, you're kind of cheerful about that. Uh, what will be, will be. On the other hand, whatever will be is because you have chosen it. The future is open. Nothing is predetermined. It's, it's up to you you to make good decisions since everything depends on what you and I and we choose to do. So I've just articulated to you classic points of view, right, down through the history of philosophy, one end of the spectrum and on the other. Which one is right? We get a great passage here in Acts 27, which answers this age-old question. And so we're going to look at the details, beginning in verse 17. Incidentally, how many of you have been seasick before out on the open sea? Yeah, uh, I've been seasick one time, and that's because I've only been on the ocean one time. <laughs> sure, sure enough, I don't even know how they were allowed to do this, but we ended up in junior high taking a five-day trip from Phoenix to San Diego, and we got to go to SeaWorld, and I think we went to... Um, Disneyland, but we also went to Dana Point in California. Some of you have been there. And we went out on this huge sailboat, this giant you know, throwback sailboat. And I would say that like every single one of us were leaning over the side of the ship, just you know, retching into the sea. Well, here we have men who have been on the sea in, in a hurricane for 14 days. Can you believe it? Like that would kill any one of us. 14 days, no light, no sun, two weeks in a hurricane. Verse 17, they tie the cables underneath this wooden ship to keep it from you know, breaking apart. Then in verse 19, they begin to throw all their precious cargo overboard, their, their food. Later on, they, throw, they start to throw all the grain off the ship. Verse 20, that says that these guys had abandoned all hope that they would be saved. They had given up all hope of survival when Paul gathered them, gathers them together and says, an angel appeared to me. Um, angels don't show up too often in the Bible's history, but when they do, it's a big deal. An angel, a messenger from heaven, has appeared to, to me and delivered a prophecy to me for your encouragement that not a single one of us is going to die. Uh, unfortunately, the ship is going to be lost, but we're going to be saved. Uh, so keep up your courage, boys. Eat some food. Take heart, because this is going to go exactly the way that God has told me. Um, strong assurance, right? Uh, that God has shown me the future. But then the things don't improve, do they? They get worse. This, we have this high point of drama. The sailors are measuring the depth of the water. And first it's 20 fathoms. And then a little later it is 15 fathoms. They're approaching land. They can't see it. They're just, we're, it's getting shallower and shallower, rapidly appro approaching land. Normally in those days, the way that you would uh, address a situation like this is you would drop the anchor down. Um, anchored down and uh, the ship is going to be dragged along uh, the, the seafloor. 
And once the tension on the ship was too unbearable, they would cut the anchor and they would drop another. And so actually archaeologists have found on the bottom of the Mediterranean a series of anchors, like one, two, three, four, and then a shipwreck at the end of it. So one of the things um, that people who actually know nautical, uh, have nautical knowledge, they read this chapter and they are amazed because uh, this is so accurate for a first century understanding of, of, of seafaring, which, you know, I, as I said, I know nothing about. But that's what they did. They lower these anchors successively. And verse 30 then is the most dramatic moment in the story. The sailors know that things are not looking good. And so they go to the front of the ship in the dead of night at midnight, it says, under the pretenses that they're going to drop another anchor. And the Apostle Paul is, well, he's, he's strolling the ship at midnight, maybe? Or he has a sense that something nefarious is going on, and he actually sees the sailors at the front of the ship uh, dropping a lifeboat, trying to abandon the ship. Um, and what may not be readily apparent is that army and navy are both on the ship. Did you catch that? So you got sailors and you, and you have soldiers. He runs back to the soldiers. He says to the centurion, if those sailors leave, we're all going to die. You better do something about it. Now, where did, where was the, why did he say just a few minutes ago, we're all going to live? Like, sailors or no sailors, God's got this, I've seen the future, and it's all predetermined. And he says, no, he says, if you don't stop them, we don't have any, any uh, sailors on board. We can't, we can't carry this ship. Um, we're all going to die. And so the soldiers, heeding the warning, run forward. They cut off the lifeboat. It drifts away in the storm. And, and here we have the confluence of these two ideas. Uh, and in the first century, they were probably most predominantly known through the two schools of thought, Epicureanism and Stoicism. Um, uh, every single event in life happens by predetermination. That's what the Stoics believed. They were fatalists. Um, their favorite story was the great Greek tragedy, Oedipus. Remember that one? Oedipus, an oracle, uh, says that, um, unfortunately, this young man who's about to be born to you is going to kill his father and marry his mother. Well, the father hears that and decides, I don't like that. <laughs> so he takes the newborn, wraps him up, hands him to, a, I don't know, a woodman or something, take him out into the forest and kill him. Um, the man bundles him up, takes him out into the wilderness, and he doesn't kill him. He gives him to somebody else. And Oedipus grows up all his life not knowing who his real parents are. He comes to the city of, is it Thebes? And there he outriddles a sphinx. And the sphinx leaves. I think the sphinx is so defeated that he jumps off a cliff. He commits suicide. And Oedipus is uh, lionized by all the people. What ends up happening, in spite of all the efforts to avoid the destiny of Oedipus killing his father and marrying his mother, at the very end, that's exactly what takes place. Um, and the narrator at the end of Oedipus comes upon um, the stage, an empty stage, and he says these final words, quote, no man should be considered fortunate until he is dead. <laughs> like, how's that for a Disney ending, right? <laughs> How bleak can you get? But Stoics were fatalists. The Epicureans, on the other hand, believed in a, an entirely unencumbered future. And I, I was reading somebody who tried to bring this into a, a more contemporary illustration. And they pointed out, if you go to Back to the Future, the movie Back to the Future, not part one, not part two, but three, I think it's at the end of Back to the Future 3, Martin McFly is there with his girlfriend, and Doc Brown um, 
is saying goodbye to them. And uh, Jennifer Parker, the girlfriend, she's holding a piece of paper. Dr. Brown, I brought this note back from the future, and now it's erased. And Dr. Brown, uh, of course it's erased. <laughs> Remember that voice? And she, but what does it mean? It means that your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one, both of you. And Marty McFly puts his arm around her, and he, he says, we will, Doc. <laughs> Michael J. Fox. And that's it. That's Epicureanism. Uh, your future, who knows, but make it a good one. Um, and that's a, a very popular idea these days. Like, I want to know that my choices matter. I want my decisions to be the determinative factor for my life. Let's, let's put everybody on an even plane, you know, an even setting, and then, you know, may the cream of the crop rise up by making good decisions, like meritocracy. Maybe that sounds invigorating to you when you're in your teens and your 20s, but you know what happens when you get to your 40s and 50s? Uh, you look back at yourself when you were a teen or a 20-year-old, and you say, I'm I'm shocked that I'm still alive. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked that I survived this long. I was so clueless. I was such an idiot. I thought I had wisdom then. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I, you know, am I right? Those of you who are 40, am I right? You look back at your older self and um, you realize just how lucky you were that many of the decisions that you made didn't turn out the way that you wanted them to go, Right? So many of your decisions were bad, and, and, they, and there were so many other factors out of your control that ended up turning your life in one way or another. Somebody had mercy on you. Somebody, somebody was kind to you. So on one hand, stoic fatalism is frightening. If you have capricious gods who have determined it all and you can't avoid it. On the other hand, Epicureanism is frightening because there's a whole lot of um, weight being put on decisions that are being made by a person who probably shouldn't be making them. <laughs> um, so what is it? Which one is true? Do you go in door A or door B? Um, Paul is 100% certain that what God has shown him about the future will come to pass. And Paul is not passive about that. He is a, an active actor. He's you know, pointing to, 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 the, to the sailors and speaking to soldiers, go there, do this. Um, he doesn't say it doesn't matter what the sailors are going to do. They can go snorkeling for all I care. <laughs> he, he doesn't say we can't die, it's fixed. He's like, let's take action. We must take action. But it's this confident, like, yeah, confident, not panicked action. Do you know the other place in the book of Acts where we see this combination of divine sovereignty and, and compatibility of divine sovereignty with free human choices? None other than the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, part of Peter's Pentecost sermon. We didn't include it in the bulletin, but it's there. He stands up before the crowd and he says these words. Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth was handed over to you by God's, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What is Peter saying there? Was Jesus foreordained to be crucified? Yes. Were Pilate and the Jews and the other men of Israel morally culpable for that wicked action? Yes. Were they being used by God? Yes. 
Were they making free and responsible choices? Yes. Um, And everything that they did really mattered. And so which is it? Um, When it's all said and done, when it is all said and done, it is not 50% God and 50% us. It's not 80% God and 20% us. It's not 60% God and 40% us. It is, it's 100-100. It's 100-100. And that's so counterintuitive. Um, But it's always how the Bible speaks. God is the author of all of history. He's writing the story. He, he is, he's Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings. He's, he's the one writing the story. And yet we must summon the courage and wisdom to make the best decision suitable for every situation. I mean, it, it is up to us to, to live the best that we can. And yet on that other level, the one who's writing the story turns out to be a good and gracious father who, who loves us, who knows us. Uh, and because of that, we have this strong confidence that at the end of the day, we can't screw it up. <laughs> we really can't. We can't screw it up. We can't screw it up. I would say this to you, just to make it a little more practical. If you're new to Christianity and you um, really want to kind of, I don't know, um, get to the heart of what Christianity is about, I challenge you to find the, it's called the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. We use it sometimes in our worship service. You do the uh, modern English version because it's, it's more intelligible. But, but just memorize this. Memorize this. Uh, what is your only comfort in life and death? My only comfort is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul and life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair from my head can fall without the will of my Father in heaven. That's the very same language that Paul spoke about there to the sailors. Not a hair from your head will perish without the will of my Father in heaven. There's the divine sovereignty part. And then he goes, because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And there's the, there's the uh, you know, human responsibility and actions. Because of all this love stemming from the cross, it makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The other little clue, and before I'll just say this really quickly before I move to the second point, the clue that, that Jesus has got this, I think in the story, it's how Paul breaks bread. Did any of you notice that? Paul does this, this pseudo-Eucharistic Lord's Supper meal with the men on the ship. And it's not, it's not like he's actually celebrating the Eucharist, uh, the, but, he, but, it, but it certainly has echoes. And the Christians who were on the ship they would have heard those echoes. It says that Paul took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them. They ate. It was just like in the middle of the storm, Jesus is just still feeding us from the table with his bread. It's this little, it's just, it's an Easter egg to tell us, to tell them that um, I got this. It's going to be okay. Well, let's move on then to the second point, uh, lessons that we can learn um, in the storm. And to, to speak about this, I need to give you some background on Paul. Paul was, he ministered for about 20 years. We know that he took, get this, 11 voyages on sea. At least 11. He probably took more. But I mean, this is a man who is very skilled with traveling the sea. 
Okay, got that point. Paul was also very skilled in suffering. <laughs> he, he's, you know, he suffers a ton. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he lists some of the hardships that he endures as part of his ministry. They include these words, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Um, many times I was thrown into prison. You know, this is one of those instances of that. So, and, and those parts I think we get. He's going to experience opposition from hostile people. And Jesus said, if you love me, in this world you will have trouble. If you love me, people, other people will hate you for it. Um, that makes sense to us. People will oppose you for your faithfulness to Christ. But do you know what in that list doesn't make a, a lick of sense to me? He goes on to say, and three times I was shipwrecked. Three times? Like, what, what are the odds of that? Like, if you're going to Vegas... Like, and in the first century, like, how many people are going to survive three shipwrecks? What are the over-under over odds of three shipwrecks? Three times I was shipwrecked, and um, one night I spent, or, or sorry, yeah, and I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Go back to Second Corinthians 11. He says that. A night and a day in the open sea, 24 hours in the ocean. Um, and I'm sure it was not spent on an inflatable a life raft with canned food and, you know, a water filtration system and, and a life preserver. He's, he, 24 hours clinging to a plank or floating debris in the open sea. And all Paul wanted to do was serve God. People are going to oppose him. Poseidon's going to oppose him too. <laughs> right? What's going on? The sea, is, is the God of the ocean opposing him too? Well, there are at least two things happening in this storm. Number one, Greek literature was filled with stories of, of shipwrecks and voyages, not Jewish literature. There's very few um, ocean stories in the Bible. And it was, it, the Jews, they just didn't go to sea because they were terrified of the sea. The sea was this, um, it was emblematic of chaos and, you know, the forces of nature that cannot be tamed. And, and um, actually, if you go to the end of the Bible, you'll notice that as God, as John is giving us the picture of the new heavens and the new earth. What is, what is the world going to look like once it's been renewed? It tells us, quote, and the sea was no more. There's no more ocean in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, some of you are like, no, <laughs> I love the beach. Don't worry, it's symbolic because the sea, <laughs> the sea is a, either a symbolism of chaos or oftentimes in the Bible, the sea is a symbol of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations who were, um, you know, hostile to Israel. And in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new city, the Jew and the Gentile, the, the, the person of Abraham and those outside are united as one humanity in the new city. So that might be the other reason why there's no ocean in the future. But sea stories simply don't factor prominently in the Bible. There's only one big one. This is where I'm going. There's only one big one. And which one is that? The story of Jonah. <laughs> the story of Jonah. The book of Jonah. Jonah is running away to Tarshish to avoid having to go to preach to the imperial city of Nineveh. When a great storm comes, um, what happens in that story? The, the sailors begin, just like the sailors in this story, they start to cast off all of the cargo into the sea. Jonah is asleep in the hold of the boat. They go down and wake up Jonah. What's going on? Why is this happening? And Jonah says, it's not Poseidon, it's, it's Yahweh. <laughs> it's the Lord who has done this. And Jonah is eventually thrown overboard and the storm ceases. 
I wonder if part of Luke's point here is to show us that Paul is not like Jonah. You know, Paul is being faithful to his calling to go and preach to the imperial city, to go to Rome. You know, Jonah represents Israel, who sadly was unfaithful in her commission to go to the nations. But Paul is a representative of the church. Throughout the book of Acts, it's the church who, she's being faithful in her commission because the Holy Spirit came upon her on the day of Pentecost. She's being faithful in witnessing to Jesus to all the nations. And that's why Paul is on the boat, to take the gospel to, to Rome. We could go even further and say it is only because Paul is on that boat that, that all 276 people are saved. It's almost like Paul is a light to these people in 14 days of darkness. And it's only because he says to them, do this, guys, and you will live, that everyone is able to safely swim to the shores of Malta. So I just wonder if metaphorically, Paul represents what the church is always supposed to be. You know, the light to the empire. Um, and I, of course, have made a lot of, of this, these points in the sermons in the book of Acts because it's a point that recurs over and over and over again. But the second thing going on here is uh, it's not just about Jonah, but it's especially about Jesus. Because Jesus, Jesus and Jonah are linked in the Gospels. Jonah goes overboard, and three days later, he's resurrected in the belly of a fish. Jesus is the ultimate Jonah. It's Jesus who basically said, throw me into the heart of the street. Throw me into the heart of the storm. It's Jesus who willingly offers up his body to the shameful death on the cross. And then three days later, he's resurrected out of the belly. It says the belly of Sheol, the belly of the grave. And he breaks it open. You know, going back to the movie I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, The Perfect Storm, there's only one guy who um, doesn't die on the ship. I think it's played by uh, Mark Wahlberg, Bobby. He's a rookie fisherman. He goes overboard and he surfaces. I should have said, spoiler alert. <laughs> I figure if, if we're already like 20 years away from the movie, it's past the statute of limitations. But spoiler alert, as he surfaces, he witnesses the um, Andrea Gale sinking stern first into the Atlantic. Quote, Knowing that he has no chance of survival without a life jacket, Bobby silently says his goodbyes to his loved ones as the rapidly rising swell, swell carries him away into the storm. It's so bleak. Everybody dies. But when Christ goes overboard, everybody lives. Everybody lives. And um, that's the gospel in a nutshell, is <laughs> Christ goes overboard that we might be saved. And he too is saved by the resurrection. So we see these two things going on in the storm. A Paul who is not like Jonah and a Jesus who, who is uh, the far greater Jonah. There's lots more we could talk about from Acts 27. I want to conclude with this last and brief point. I probably should have made it longer, but um, I'm going to actually keep this sermon under 40 minutes this morning, which will be the first in like six or seven in a row. Storms in the Bible, well, we use this meta the language even today of like storms being a metaphor for trials and sufferings that we go through. I mean, right? You're battered by the wind and the waves. You, you feel bruised and, and seasick. Uh, we have folks in our church right now, uh, John and Martha Falk, John's battle with cancer. Is, he has to feel like he's in the eye of a storm. Um, we've got a number of people in our church who are 
battling with really bad medical stuff right now. You have to feel like you're in the eye of the storm. Um, Some of us, some people here are going through a divorce. Uh, Some of us are are the children of a divorce. There's just tons and tons of times when we feel like we're on a boat and we're sick as a dog because the wind and the waves are just destroying us. When Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee, what did he do at that moment? He stood up and he said to the storm, peace be still. And it was instantly still. Sometimes Jesus does that for us. Sometimes peace be still, and it's just immediately fixed. Not all the time. Sometimes the ship sinks. <laughs> like this instance. Like it, it's a disaster. We crash on the rocks, and the ship sinks. And And you can't see it at the moment, but later on, you're able to see how, like, person by person, like, every one of them somehow is saved as a result of it. You know, God has, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. But if he plants his footsteps in the sea, it means you can't see his footsteps if it's in the sea, it's not on the beach. It's not the footsteps on the beach, it's in the sea. And you know, sometimes in that moment, you can't see what he's doing. It feels like just pointless, pain, um, painful suffering. But only later on, you see how God, you know, redeems it all. Delivers everyone. There's a hymn that they sing at the Naval Academy that maybe if you're um, a cadet, you will recognize this. At least I've been told they sing this at the Naval Academy. Eternal Father, strong to save. Anybody? a.k.a. the Navy hymn, Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm does bind the restless wave, who bids the mighty ocean deep, its own appointed limits keep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. Oh, Savior, whose almighty word the winds and waves submission heard, who walked upon the foamy deep and calm amid the rage did sleep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. O Holy Spirit, who did brood upon the waters dark and rude and bid their angry tumult cease and give for wild confusion peace. O hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. Um, That's one of the things that we have the privilege of living in community to do (laughs) is is to cry for those in peril on the sea. And uh, what I've been praying um, for folks, uh, I've been praying this for the folks and I've been praying this uh, for others, is that, that third verse in the Holy Spirit, and bid their angry tumult cease, and give for wild confusion peace. And hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. God can provide relief and rescue. He can do it instantaneously, or he can do it mysteriously. But we trust in Christ, and we pray for those whom we love, um, that he would indeed do it. So let's pray now. <clears throat> Oh, Holy Spirit, we thank you for this wonderful word, um, this exciting word from um, Acts 27. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to, be, to live lives of peace and assurance and boldness, knowing that you are in control of all things. And for any of our brothers and sisters or any of our neighbors or family members who are presently at peril in the sea, Lord, have mercy upon them. Um, be with them. Break bread with them and deliver them. Um, Let them find that 
the knowledge you are writing the story of their lives um, gives them great confidence that you uh, will take whatever actions they, they, you, they have and will lead them to a good end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.